Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Happy Pentecost, dear listeners. Today's episode is very Pentecost-themed, and I want to open a little differently today. I want to spend a moment with some lyrics. Happen to have a handy Methodist hymnal in front of me. These lyrics are from a well-known hymn, and I want to read all three verses to you. They go like this. Come down, O love divine. Seek thou this soul of mine, and visit it with thine own ardor glowing. O comforter, draw near, within my heart appear, and kindle it, thy holy flame bestowing. O let it freely burn, till earthly passions turn to dust and ashes in its heat consuming, and let thy glorious light shine ever on my sight, and clothe me round the while my path illuming. And so the yearning strong with which the soul will long, shall far outpass the power of human telling. For none can guess God's grace, till love creates a place, wherein the Holy Spirit makes a dwelling. Where does the Holy Spirit make a dwelling? This is the question of our episode today, I think. If the Spirit of Christ is the person of the Trinity who conceives and animates the flesh of Christ and his body, the church. How are all of these realities related? How do we recognize them? Several years ago, the Reverend Dr. Ephraim Radner, professor of historical theology at Wycliffe College, published a book called The End of the Church, a spicy title that refers to the egregious reality of disunity and failure in Christ's body. And given that, the book asks, doesn't death in the body indicate the spirit's absence? Like I said, spicy stuff. Back in 2019, Dr. Radner published another book 
on what he sees as our contemporary misreadings and misunderstandings of the Spirit's work in the world and our lives. And that book is called A Profound Ignorance, Modern Pneumatology and Its Anti-Modern Redemption. Are we given the gift of the Holy Spirit in order to fix or even alleviate the world's problems or our sufferings? How do we know what the Holy Spirit is up to when faced with vague or conflicting claims of the Spirit's work? And where is the Holy Spirit in our failure? The Reverend Dr. Wesley Hill and I sat down for a conversation with the Reverend Dr. Ephraim Radner about just these questions, and we were delighted and challenged. And we hope that you enjoy listening in. Thank you so much to the Reverend Dr. Ethan Radner and the Reverend Dr. Wesley Hill. We're looking forward to a great discussion today about the Holy Spirit and the church and church unity in time for Pentecost. Thank you both for being here today. It's great to be here, Amber. My pleasure. Nice to be with you, Amber, and also with you, Wes. Yeah, friends, we're in the season of Pentecost right now, and I just want to read a portion of Acts chapter 2. Um, on the day of Pentecost, uh, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, Peter stands up in Jerusalem and addresses a whole throng of people, and he describes the career of Jesus and how he was put to death and raised. And then he says uh, in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you both see and hear. So Peter is there explicitly linking the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus to the experience of the Holy Spirit that they are now uh, seeing and witnessing there in Jerusalem. And he's saying this is the direct result of what, what happened on Easter. The Spirit is now poured out and Christ is now guiding his church. I pointed out to my students just this week, that uh, the very first verse of Acts uh, tells us that Luke uh, says, I I narrated in my first book all that Jesus began to do and teach, with the implication that Acts in the power of the Spirit will now tell the story of what Jesus continues to do and teach. So I wonder if we might think together for a few minutes just about that link between the resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit, about that link between the earthly life of Jesus and his exaltation and the reality of the Spirit's work during Pentecost. I wonder, uh, Ephraim, maybe I'll just ask you in the form of a question. uh, Why is it important to note this link between the story of Jesus and the story of the Spirit? What's going on there in Peter's address on Pentecost? Yeah, so the exaltation is is a key element here. But I think it can also be, I don't want to say misunderstood, but... um, disequilibriated in some way in the way we think about it. I think one of the keys with with Peter's discussion of the exaltation to understanding it, at least in part, is to note the day itself. So Pentecost is is what? It's it's the 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 the, the Greek term for the Hebrew Jewish festival of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after um, Passover and so on. 
Um, and it's meant to be a remembrance through thanksgiving of God's provision, not in the liberation, but in the slavery of the Hebrews in Egypt, uh, at least according to Deuteronomy. It also then comes to be associated with the gift of the law um, itself. So you've got this funny set of things in, in Pentecost uh, that, that is happening on this day uh, that deals with slavery, with God's provision, uh, and with the law, all of these things together. So it, these are elements that, that shape in a fundamental way Israel's life before God, but in a way that's pretty textured, if you, if you want to put it that way, with all its deep troubles, its demands, its hopes, its uh, utter dependence upon God for salvation in the midst of what would otherwise be a kind of destructive context and reality of, of sin, enslavement, limits, and so on. So that's the temporal starting point. When the day of Pentecost arrived, this is what happens. And Peter then says, this is that day. What? This is that day that Joel speaks of in um, uh, Joel 2. What, what is it? it? You know, the, the day of blood, of fire, of smoke, of darkness, of crying out the Lord's name so that one can be saved and so on. And later uh, he says, save yourself from this crooked generation and so on. This is that day which is happening now, he says. So what does the exaltation have to do with it? I think in a very clear way, the exalted Jesus who is being, who is being pointed to, announced here, is the judge. Jesus is the Lord now who is the judge of the world, and we are now at the day of the Lord, he says. That is what has happened. Uh, and the Spirit um, is given as a kind of unveiling and pointing to an enabling of the people to stand before God and his judgment uh, in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what, what is his message? Repent. <laughs> Be baptized and repent. So we can go, go to that, but I think this being filled with the Holy Spirit, the apostles and the people, that is a, the pneumatic event, if you will, an act is to bring Israel face to face with the judgment of God in a way that they can be saved from it. Say to start not with the sense of, of you know, you know from some of the things I've written about the dangers of modern pneumatology from a sense of the spirit being offered as a gift of escape. This is, this is being, the Spirit is being offered as the gift of actually being rooted before God mm. on this day of judgment. Now, th th there's grace, obviously. Right. That's the whole point of the resurrection. But I think that, that, that and, and, and the fact that the resurrected one is the judge, but it is the judge that the Spirit brings us face to face with. Uh, I mean, as you're speaking, I'm, I'm thinking about the connections of the Spirit to those themes you mentioned as being there in Pentecost already in Deuteronomy. I mean, one of the things we see the early Christians doing throughout the New Testament is linking the role of the Holy Spirit to producing fruits in the lives of believers, fruits which Paul says in Galatians 5 end up fulfilling the law. Uh, you know, the Galatians, without aiming at the law, they end up doing the law, uh, fulfilling it by the power of the Spirit. What is the outcome 
to Peter's, uh, as within the same chapter, and it follows immediately to Peter's uh, sermon, is there is a, a, a set of fairly extensive numbers of baptisms that take place, and everybody joins together in this life with the apostles of a certain kind. And I, I think, I'm not saying that it, it could be done in some kind of one-to-one -one matching, but you could take what is said about that so-called Jerusalem, first Jerusalem community, and map it on to just what you talked about, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, in terms of faithfulness and, 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 and patience and uh, self-control and uh, gentleness, all those sorts of things, love, uh, which are represented in this life. But it's a very particular kind of life. You're quite right. It is the life that fulfills the law. It strikes me, Ephraim, when you were describing this, that to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit of the judge, of the one who is the judge. And then what that produces in the life of the person who's filled is not condemnation to be filled with the spirit of the judge of mankind. It actually produces repentance, um, which removes condemnation. But then I also wonder, this community that's filled with the spirit, do those who are filled with the spirit of this judge spoken about in the prophet Joel provoke repentance in others? Only to the degree that their life, as you said, is the life of the judge who is vindicated, who is Jesus. Uh, let's say, as they embody that, let's take another image from the, day, from the day of Pentecost, which has been fairly well established in the tradition, and that's the tongues and the many, the many languages that are spoken and the nations that are gathered and so on, represented. Um, that has traditionally been seen for a long time as a kind of reversal of Babel, right? So if we think about Babel, it's, a, it's, a, it's a paradoxical story to bring up here. Um, I mean, what is the problem with the, with the Babelites? I guess we can't call them Babylonians. That's confusing. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the people of Babel, um, what is their sin? Well, they want to be remembered by name. Let's go make a name for ourselves. And also they're afraid of being scattered. Uh, we don't want to be scattered. We're going to rise, build this up to heaven, make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered and so on. Well, what happens uh, they are scattered, <laughs> and it's a word that ends up being used um, in different ways, mostly negatively, in 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 the Old Testament. Uh, that uh, the enemies of Israel are scattered by God uh, when they're defeated, but Israel is scattered among the nations and so on. Interestingly enough, the apostles are scattered in Acts eight. Uh, they're scattered, and what do they do? They go off and they preach uh, the word. The apostles take on the very punishment of Babel. And in so doing, they also live it out in a new way so that the word of God is preached to the whole world. Okay, so how does that relate to, you asked this question about Jesus. Well, where is the one place, at least as I can remember it, where the multiple languages of the world are understood in one place and enacted and embodied in one place. Where is that? <laughs> That's the crucifixion, where the sign is put above him 
in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. This is the king of the Jews. Here is the one place where the languages of the empire are brought together in one man. And there's this weird thing. I mean, it's weird, it's paradoxical, it's, it's hard to fathom in which, in which the, the apostles are, are sort of fulfilling the life, the death, and yes, the, this judging reality and power of Christ by being scattered throughout the world. And that is their mission, going back. So does it provoke repentance? In some way, it has to in the same way that it is Jesus' own body that provokes repentance. Um, Pentecost sort of throws the body of Christ into the midst of the world so that all can see it and all are provoked uh, one way or the other. I mean, choices are made uh, before him. The Spirit isn't just meant to give us the good parts of Jesus with respect to our own expectations and, and desires. The Spirit gives us all of Jesus. Ephraim, this has been a, a theme of your writing for many years. Uh, I have here beside me one of uh, your early books um, called The End of the Church. And the Spirit comes into the subtitle. Uh, the subtitle is A Pneumatology of Christian Division in the West. And in that book, you... Uh, trace uh, through figural reading of the Old Testament, what might the Spirit be up to in our state of horrendous division in the church? And most recently, you've written a new book on pneumatology called A Profound Ignorance. And I wonder if you could connect the dots a bit for us uh, between that earlier project and your latest book. Uh, You've been pursuing this theme of the Spirit not simply being located in the the so-called good parts, but the Spirit leading us into that Golgotha experience. Uh, Talk to us a bit about the trajectory of your thinking on pneumatology. So, um, yeah, and and the early book, The End of the Church, had this argument about the church being abandoned by the Holy Spirit. That is sort of a pneumatological claim regarding the divided church, um, uh, which means that abandonment is a kind of ongoing reality for centuries and centuries, since division is not exactly a recent phenomenon. And what did you what did you mean by that abandonment, Ephraim? Because there, we're going to have some listeners who are familiar with that project, some who found it very objectionable, and others who loved it, and others who have no idea what it is. So could you say just a, a word about what you meant by that abandonment? Well, in, 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 I, I was exaggerating in a way through, through um, a limited emphasis, as I said, in an attempt to redress a, a, an imbalance. Um, the idea is not that the, there is no Holy Spirit that has anything to do with the church, but that the church, uh, rightly understood as the body of Christ, Im, is, Im, is being embodied in the fullness of who Christ is. And um, if one looks at the church, um, one is going to see all kinds of things, but one of the most troubling things one sees and experiences in the church is precisely its failures, its limitations. It's, it's the reality that it has not done what it was called to do or that it has claimed to do and so on, unity. Uh, in the truth, and so on. Jesus's prayer in John 17, you know, how is it that the church is not what Jesus prays that it's supposed to be? That, that's, a, that's just a, 
that's a, a major problem and problems like it uh, for Christian witness. How does a Christian deal with that? Um, my, my argument in the earliest book was that, well, if, if the Christian is not going to simply uh, uh, leave aside her or his faith uh, and repudiate it, uh, then this reality must be a prod for us to go deeper into what the church is and, and its relationship with Christ. Take seriously the church's embodiment of Christ as the body of Christ. And the place I focused, not, not arbitrarily, but because indeed it had been focused upon in the tradition in different places, which the book points out, though not consistently, was in Jesus's dead body. That is a body abandoned by the Spirit. And, and, and that is still Jesus's body. You see, this is, a, this, is a, this is, again, hard to fathom. But the dead Christ is still Christ. But um, I was personally inspired, frankly, by some of these paintings from the, from the late Renaissance, uh, people like Montaigne or Holbein and so on, these images of the dead Christ in which they actually took human corpses um, and as models. And some of them are quite frightening. There's a line in Dostoevsky's novel, The Idiot, where a character, I think talking about the Holbein image of the dead Christ, says that image could cause someone to lose their faith. Well, right. But isn't it, my, my point is ultimately it ought to be the opposite. Uh, for the Christian, that should strengthen our faith in the face of all the difficulties, challenges, and disappointments we have with, within it. That is Christ. That is the Christ who who teach who is born incarnate God who teaches who heals uh, who who dies for our sins and who's resurrected and exalted. But that is Him. Now, so you know, to me that was a kind of iconic opening to trying to understand what is going on in a church that is so obviously bereft of the kinds of things it claims that it has been given. Does that mean it is no longer the church? Does that mean there is no God? Does that mean it's not connected to Jesus? No, it's connected just there, just at that place in, in, in its most obvious form. So it's paradoxical. The notion that we be abandoned by the spirit, as I said, I think is, a, is, is clearly embedded in Christian faith. I mean, the Anglican morning prayer, we, we take the bit of the psalm, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We pray it every day. Why would we pray it if we thought it wasn't possible? <laughs> and, and furthermore, it is Jesus's prayer. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I, you know, listen, the problem with, with looking at this makes it sound like, well, all you're interested in is this grim vision of Jesus abandoned on the cross. Why would anybody want to be a Christian through that reach? Well, well, it strikes me that, you know, the Holy Spirit is about many good things. It's not just about abandonment, but it does include abandonment. But the Holy Spirit puts us and the church in the place where Christ is, and that is in this world which he has made. And that's what my last book has tried to sort of think about. The Holy Spirit is a placing us more fully within the world rather than taking us out and beyond. And that world that we are in, as we all know from our own personal lives, is one that's a mixed bag of, of things that we like and dislike, that, that give us joy and that cause us uh, pain. Um, but the, that is the world in which the Holy Spirit uh, has placed us. 
And so the fullness of the Christian life is given in, in living and staying deeply, as deeply as possible within this world, which was the world into which Jesus is incarnate. And that includes all these things. It does include, by the way, all the many gifts that we traditionally associate with the Holy Spirit. Those are not, those are not gone. They're not occluded because of the division or the sins of the church and so on. But one thing they are not, it seems to me, and I'm talking about things like, um, you know, gifts of, of, of healing and tongues, charismata of one kind or another, joy and so on, which are also fruit. Um, those things are all part of our lives. But one of the things I pressed very hard in the second book was that these things cannot be, they cannot be seen as the map of our life in Christ. They are, they are gifts <laughs> that come within our life. And by, by the, because of that, they cannot be seen as the character of the Holy Spirit in some kind of principled fashion. The, the life in the Spirit is not one succession of, of special experiences and, and so on. I mean, that's what leads to, on the one hand, the prosperity gospel, and on the other hand, a kind of unrelenting press to better the world in a way that, uh, that irons out all the realities of our limitations that only end in disappointment. If you're paying attention to the lectionary, you know that pretty soon we'll be in the Gospel of John. Well, Rowan Williams and Augustine scholar John Cavadini are joining us to help you preach. The Living Church Institute and New City Press are pleased to invite you to a free masterclass on June 8th on Augustine's homilies on St. John, focusing on the art of your preaching. The online event is open to all, and it's for preachers and teachers especially. For more information and to register, just click the link in today's show notes. I've always been struck by the way St. Paul in Romans 8 parallels the groaning of the fallen creation. He says the creation is longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption. Uh, he parallels that with the Spirit's work of groaning within believers, you know, when we don't have the words to pray. So in that way, the Spirit enables our participation as believers in the groaning of the world. It doesn't remove us from that groaning. No, it doesn't. But the thing that probably doesn't come clearly enough in what I, I want to say is that that groaning, if you will, or that, that engagement with the world as it is, really is the place of our fullest joy. Mm. These are not contradictions. Mm. And I, yeah. I have a feeling that that's been part of the problem of kind of modern, not just modern, but I'll say for now, modern pneumatological press is that somehow it's viewed, we've gotten in our head that the Holy Spirit provides a kind of joy that is apart from the world we live in. We are given joy in the life of Christ. <laughs> um, if you can't find the ultimate joy of God in a life in which, well, let's just say now in the, in, in the middle of a pandemic, if you cannot find the deepest joy possible right here, there isn't another one waiting for you somewhere else. I mean, heaven or something that is still something we don't quite understand. 
but it's not going to be instead of. Mm. <laughs> and um, I think that I think that's a challenge to us right now, very much so. Which is one reason I would like to see the the church celebrate Pentecost more fully, uh, in that sense, more more thickly. My favorite words uh, in a more textured way um, than we tend to do. The day of Pentecost is 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 right now. That is the day, and it's not. But we're not putting Pentecost on hold. Um, um, because things haven't worked out the way we want them to. As I've been slowly reading your new book on the Spirit, Ephraim, I've also uh, just finished reading a new book from a young scholar at the University of Cambridge, Simeon Zoll. Uh, Zoll published a book called The Holy Spirit and Christian Experience in 2020 from Oxford University Press. And one of the arguments he makes in that book is that a lot of currently popular theological talk about pneumatology has a curious sort of floating quality. And he quotes people like uh, T.F. Torrance and Catherine Tanner, who have this very robust language about we participate in the life of Christ by the Spirit. But when it, when it comes to actually cashing out experientially, what does that participation look like? What's the texture of it? What's the shape of it? He points out that they often don't have anything to say. And so he, he, he has an interesting engagement with affect theory and the way that we need to be able to speak concretely about the work of the Spirit in experiential terms. And it strikes me in certain ways that your projects have some parallels insofar as you're wanting to say uh, pneumatology can't float free from our bodiliness. It can't float free from our enmeshment in time and the vagaries of, of you know, the Christian life, life in the world. And I think what Zoll is pressing for in, in his own way is something similar, that we need a thick account of pneumatology that uh, somehow makes that concrete point of connection with lived experience. Uh, and I would agree. That's absolutely right. Historically, though, not 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 uh, uniformly, but nonetheless, sort of the, the drift of, of the history of speaking these terms has been to uh, increasingly narrow the range of affective pneumatic experience. I think that's a that's a, a drift to be resisted. It's not that healing is more pneumatic <laughs> than long suffering. Um, I mean, scripturally, that cannot be the case. Um, in one sense, they are all <laughs> at least potentially pneumatic. Every experience of our life. I mean, that's one reason why. The Holy Spirit has, I mean, obviously it goes back to things like Genesis and other things, been associated with creation itself, which is why, yes, it's appropriate to try to engage pneumatically, pneumatologically, in terms of our thinking, matters of growth, matters of learning, cognitive realities, emotional realities, uh, physical experiences of pain and limitation and relief and joy. And uh, um, the problem is if you, if you, or the problem, the challenge is that means everything <laughs> on some level. But why is that a challenge? I mean, that's what we are with God. It's the whole of who we are that God gives us. So my, my point is that we have to beware of, of, of limiting what counts as pneumatic experience from everything else. And our challenge is to be able to see pneumatically in the corners and edges of our life 
um, that which God has given us in his spirit. Well, Ephraim, I think it's also a challenge uh, of discernment, honestly, because I've heard many people say many different things um, and, and see many different circumstances in their lives or in an organization or in their families or things that happen to them or feelings that they have. And people, people can name contradictory experiences and both claim that it was from the Spirit. And I've found that over the years, when I first um, started exploring liturgical Christianity, um, Anglicanism, Catholicism, I was really concerned that I wasn't hearing enough about the Holy Spirit because hearing about the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost is still sort of a shibboleth to me. You sort of can take the girl out of the Pentecostalism, can't take the Pentecostalism out of the girl. Um, But I have lately just been hearing a lot more about the Holy Spirit, and I'm glad that people are naming him more and claiming his work uh, and wanting to recognize his work in their lives and in the world. Um, But how do you figure out who is who? When someone says this was the spirit or this was the work of the spirit, who is naming that rightly, uh, and who maybe needs to do a little more discerning? It all goes back to Christ. It, what, what, theologically, one of the challenges and one of the reasons this, this discernment you talk about can go in so many different ways is that the spirit doesn't really fit. <laughs> parameters of, what do you want to say, uh, human articulation. Um, The spirit is not a personalized person. Now, theologically, we say the spirit is a person, you know, the Trinity, a Trinitarian person, but that word person is a technical term. The spirit is not a personalized person the way father and son are. And they they are so in very different ways, but nonetheless, we know what a father is. But the spirit isn't that. Spirit is what? You know, people get arguments about this. That's part of the problem. We don't know what they are. And so the spirit for each of us becomes projections of a whole number of different um, emotions and desires and fears and, and attitudes and so on. However right it is to speak of the spirit, Holy Spirit, as being God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, it is not the case that we can approach the spirit the way we approach the articulate revelation of God in Jesus Christ. They're not equivalent terms in that way. And so where do you find your, where do you find your parameters, if you will, for discernment? Uh, you find them in the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, the word. That's, that, that is what's revealed, is the word. And the word tells us about the spirit. But, but if, you, if, you, if you, as anybody trying to write a systematic theology, so-called of the spirit, discovers trying to have a, a biblical theology of the spirit, it just takes you all over the place. <laughs> the revelation of the word is not a systematic uh, presentation of the Holy Spirit. You get uh, you get doves and you get winds and you get uh, a deceitful spirit and you get a good spirit and I mean it, it, it's all over the place and 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 that's why the issue isn't to discern the Spirit. Well, you are to discern the Spirit, but you discern the Spirit by discerning Christ, His Word, which I think in many ways takes us full circle. We started off this conversation talking about Acts 2 and the Spirit as the Spirit of the risen Jesus, the Spirit that he receives from the Father and pours out. So, uh, Ephraim, this has been a a rich conversation. Amber, uh, thank you. Um, It's been a pleasure to talk with both of you today. 
My pleasure. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. It's been lovely. Thank you both for being here. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast. Catch us in two weeks when we take up part two of Should We Embrace Hybrid Church? We'll get a little bit of a different perspective with the more hesitant hybrid model adapter, Father John Mason Locke, what he's learned, what he's cautious about, advice he can give you. Subscribe and don't miss an episode. This podcast is a ministry of the Living Church Institute, a ministry of the Living Church. We are a nonprofit. We would love to receive a 2 to $5 monthly donation from you to keep this podcast going. It's like skipping the coffee shop once a month or skipping that extra order of spring rolls. Just click the link in the show notes and choose a donation amount that works for you. As always, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it has been good to be with you. Peace.